All right, turn to Genesis 22. This will be our last night in Genesis 22. We, uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Abraham's role in uh, this chapter. Last week, we looked at Isaac's role in this chapter, and this week, we're going to be looking at God's role. And uh, I just want to read through this, and as I read through this, be mindful of the things that you see God doing. Uh, God is up to a whole lot of, a whole lot of, Wonderful stuff in this chapter. The wonderful stuff that sounds very scholarly. Uh, wonderful goodies. Uh, he's up to amazing things in the life of Abraham and Isaac. And I, I, uh, as I read, I want y'all to be mindful of those things. And if there's some that I don't point out, I want y'all to bring them up as we as we talk through this together. So, Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham, and said to him, Abraham, He said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. And have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, uh, Milcah also, born, also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his first brother, Buzz, I'm sure it's Bo- Buzz, his brother, uh, Kimuel the father of Aram, uh, Chesed, Hazo, uh, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel followed Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Geham, Tehosh, and Mecha, Micah. Those names are very important. We'll be quizzed over those uh, here at the end. That was uh, hard to read. Um, uh, in Genesis 22, as we have 
gone through Genesis 22, if this is your first time to jump into the study, I mean, I, I know a lot of y'all's faces are very familiar, so you've been here, but uh, we need to know ahead of time, if, if you haven't been here, that this is a test. God never really intended Isaac's life to be taken. God never intended for Abraham to actually kill Isaac. We know that up front, that it was a test, that God tested Abraham. However, Abraham was just sitting in Beersheba, relaxing, resting, and enjoying time with his family uh, when God's voice came from heaven and told him to do this. And so last week, again, we looked at Isaac's role. The week before, we looked at Abraham's. And this week, we're going to be looking at God's role. And in fact, we've already seen God's role as we've talked for two weeks about Abraham and Isaac. Uh, Sometimes we make the mistake of reading a story in the Bible and then saying something along the lines of, so the moral of the story is be like Abraham. Uh, That's not our approach. Uh, We don't read these stories for a moral. Uh, uh, we read them because they are the timeless truth that's been breathed out by a very sovereign God. Um, one example, when we read stories like this and we, and we see that we see someone doing something great, uh, one example is, is in the story of Noah where we look, you've, you may have told the story this way, I've told it this way before um, uh, to a kid, but you say, you know, God looked down from heaven and looked at Noah and he looked down from heaven and everyone is evil except for Noah. And Noah was the only one who was good, so that's who God used. But that's actually not what the story reads at all. It says that Noah was wicked like the rest of the world, and he found favor in God's eyes. And so Abraham and Isaac have found that same favor. It's kind of like if you found a $100 bill on the ground, it would be hugely beneficial to you. You found it, but you did not earn it. And so he did not earn favor in God's eye. It was something that he found in God's eye. God gave him mercy, and God gave him grace. And I tell you that because... Here, when we're looking at Abraham and Isaac, we've seen God's hand all over their lives. We've seen God's role played out in, in what's, uh, what's taking place here. The point is that anything notable, anything admirable, anything faithful that we've seen in the life of Abraham or Isaac is attributed to God. So the timeless truth that we come away with is follow God, trust God. God never breaks His promises. God always comes through. God always does what He says He's going to do, rather than be like this person or be like this person. So I, I was... As I read, I just came up with a list of the things that we saw in Abraham's life and Isaac's life that show us what God's role was in this whole thing as he tested Abraham and showed things to us today. The first thing that God did, God enabled Abraham to hear his voice when he called out to him from heaven. I was thinking about, had God not made it to where Abraham could even hear uh, his voice when he called out from heaven, he would not have heard it. And so that was step one. Then it was God, uh, it is God who enabled Abraham by the Spirit not to lose all hope. Uh, and run away. Uh, When he heard what God commanded, it was God who gave him what he needed to hear that and not just totally flip his lid and run away. And so as we looked at Abraham's role, we said Abraham didn't, he didn't wig out and, and run away and cry and scream, but rather he got up early the next morning. We see that it's God who caused him to do that. And so I want y'all to see God's hand in all these little roles we've already talked about. Uh, He could hear his voice. He enabled Abraham by the spirit not to lose all hope and run away. Uh, it's God who caused him to faithfully wake up early the next morning and prepare all the things that were needed. Remember, imagine Abraham chopping the wood. It's God who enabled him to do that. It's not because Abraham was so great. It was God's greatness working through him. It was God who kept him from turning back halfway through the journey. It is God who gave him the physical, mental, and spiritual strength to climb the mountain to answer his son's heartbreaking question. You remember when Isaac said, Dad, where's the lamb for the, for the offering? And you can imagine... Abraham's mind saying, well, what do I tell him? What should I say? And Abraham gives him a promise. It was God who enabled Abraham to do that and to, and to not 
break down and begin weeping uncontrollably when his son asked that question. It was God who gave him the physical, mental, and spiritual strength to build the altar, to bind his son, to place his son on the altar, to take out the knife, and then afterwards to wrestle the lamb, as we saw that redemption there in the end. Uh, It is God who enabled Isaac to trust his father. It's God who enabled Isaac to submit uh, to his will. So as we've looked at the role of Abraham and the role of Isaac, we've seen God's role throughout the whole thing. So now we're going to look at some more details. That's not all there is in chapter 22. It's kind of like the deeper we dig, the, the more riches we can find here. In verse 1, what's the first thing that we see, that something that God does, God's role in this? What's the first thing in verse 1? <coughs> he tested him, yeah, yeah. After these things, God tested Abraham. The first thing we see here in God's role and. And I want us to personalize this because we know that everything that we've seen in the life of Abraham and Isaac, we've seen in our lives as well that God does these same things. He's not a God who was this way here and he changed later on. Um, he's, the, he, he, he's the same person, the same God, the same person, the same God. Um, if we did not know the divine purpose of tests and trials, this would not be a good thing. What do we, what's the point of tests? What's the point of trials that we've talked about for the last, what is it? 11, 12 weeks, what was it, 7 out of the last 10 sermons I've talked about? What's the point of tests and trials? Yeah, steadfastness. What's another word for steadfast? Yeah, staying power. Uh, what would you say? Perseverance. Yeah, it makes us to where we're not, where, where we have the staying power. There's this, we're kind of refined, we're more like steel um, when, when things happen. And so tests and trials are good. So we see right off the bat, God tests his children. And because of what we've learned from seven or eight out of the last 10 sermons, we know that testing and trial is good. Uh, ben made a comment at the end of the, uh, I think it was last week, of don't, or maybe two weeks ago, don't waste your test. Don't waste your trial. Don't look at it as a bad thing. So here we see God is a God who tests his children. We know that God tests his children to build their faith. And it's interesting here, like I was thinking about in school, I was thinking about tests, like Really, it's good when children take tests. Now, when children take a test, what do they normally do with, when it time time, comes time to take the test? Yeah, that was a good sigh. That was very dramatic. That was, that was good. You really embodied what happens. What did you say? Yeah, or they cram. Yeah, they try and just get, they get it in their head for about five minutes to take the test, and then it's gone. Tests are a good thing, even in school. And so here, it's, it's kind of that same thing. We can think of it in that way that, you know, if you weren't, I mean, if, if you go all through school and a teacher never gives you a test and you don't know if you learned anything, when you get through, you might get like a little plaque that says, I made it through school, but you haven't actually learned anything. And so that's not of any uh, benefit or value. And so this test is good because it built their faith. And it's interesting because for Abraham, this test was his hardest. This was the hardest trial that Abraham faced. And we can be thankful that even through years of foolishness, faithlessness, and sinfulness, that God will still test his children to build their faith. What were some of the things that Abraham did in his past that, uh, and we can talk about him, he doesn't mind, he's not here. Um, what are some of the things that Abraham did in his past that are not so great, not, not his brightest moments? Moments where maybe we would have turned our back on him, but God didn't. Yeah, and did that happen once? Twice, he did it twice. That is so amazing to me. Um, but he feared for his life, and, and we see that he did that, and there's absolutely nothing commendable about it. It was a bad thing. So the whole, uh, we'll just say you're my sister thing, that was a low point, I think, for Abraham. That was not his uh, point of greatest faithfulness, I don't think. What are some other things he did? Why was he in Egypt in the first place? Famine, yeah, he wasn't even supposed to be there. There was a famine, and rather than trusting God through that, he went to Egypt and ended up in a mess. He did the same thing with Abimelech, and, uh, and he lied to Abimelech. He, so he has these, 
these ups and downs that we've seen, but what, what we see here is that God tests his children. And so this, the great thing here is that God will still test us and put us through a trial uh, that he might grow in us the faith that he requires, meaning that we're not abandoned because of foolishness, but we're redeemed from it. If we make mistakes in life, I'm not saying this is, a, this is your get-out-of-jail-free card, like, God loves me anyway, it's okay, I'll do whatever I want. That's not what I'm saying. By the work of the Spirit, we're to put sin to death. We talked about that Sunday. But here what we see is that through foolishness, through trials, where we uh, don't show the most faithfulness, where our sinfulness rears its head, over time we see Abraham being refined in his faith, and it's built, and it becomes stronger and stronger. And God did not turn his back and abandon Abraham in those times, but he was with him through that to this point where we know that we can look at this and learn that we're not abandoned because of our foolishness, but God redeems us from it. He redeems us. He pulls us out. He draws us out. Like Moses' name means drawn out. He draws us out of the world um, as there's so many examples in Scripture. The thing in verse 2, verse 2 it says, He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What does God do here? What does he communicate? Yeah, he communicates the requirement, but not every detail is there. Here he communicates the requirement. Um, sometimes we act as though uh, we're just completely puzzled as to what it is that God expects in our lives. Uh, I hope a lot of us would do it when we're younger and, and not older as we've uh, moved forward and matured in our faith, but sometimes we'll act as though we're completely puzzled as to what God expects. However, if we engage this word, we see that God regularly communicates his will. If, see, in engaging this word, it's when the times come and the trials come where we're challenged to do something or challenged to step away from something or challenged to maybe take a stand in something that we didn't expect that day. It's only the word that will show us what happens when those times come. The word educates us. In Psalm uh, 19, it says that it warns us of things to come. And so it's by reading the word that if I come across something that I've been warned about, I know to stay away from that thing so that I don't let that thing get into my life and become sin and become corrosive in nature. And so it's the word that tells us uh, what God requires, but we need to make it clear here, in, right off the bat, God communicates his requirement. He says what his expectation is. Uh, however, like Christy said, he doesn't always tell us what the hurdles will be. He doesn't always tell us how high the hurdles will be. He doesn't always tell us how we will get over the hurdle. But what does he tell us? That we will. He tells us that we will. He doesn't tell us what they're going to be. He doesn't tell us what the challenges are going to be. He doesn't say how long they're going to last. He doesn't say how bad it's going to get. And he doesn't say exactly how we're going to get through it. But he gives us this promise. We know at least by the Spirit. Uh, he gives us this promise that we will get through it. We will move forward. We will be able to persevere. And he won't abandon us. And so um, here, uh, let's see, where were we? Yeah. 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 That's. Yeah, and it's not the big spotlight that, like, when you're out spotlight hunting, you can see for forever. It's not. It's that lamp. That's a huge, um, a huge connection. Uh, he doesn't show us how we will get over them. He shows us that we will get over them. And he also gives us a guarantee that he will show up again and speak to us when we need more information. Here we see him say, of which I shall tell you. At the end of that verse, he says, go to this place of which I shall tell you. 
It means you go in that direction, but when you need the rest of the details, I'll give you the details when it's time. So that picture of the lamp giving you just those next few steps, he's saying, you don't need to know that yet. That's not information that's necessary for you to be faithful in what I'm telling you to do right now. And so here he says, of which I will tell you, showing that he'll show up again and speak to us when we need more information. Now in verse 9, we'll skip down. We're skipping over something real important, and we will go back to it. But in verse 9, we see at the end of verse 2, he says, of which I will tell you. Then in verse 9, it says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. See, God communicates his requirements, and he gives us the information we need at that time. But then here in verse 9, just seven verses later, God comes back and he keeps his promise. He says, I told you that I would show you where it is. And here he says, the place which I said I would tell you. In the hard trial here for Abraham, God shows up at exactly the perfect time to give him the exact information that he needs. He doesn't leave him hanging when it's necessary for him to know what he needs. Um, There was a, a sermon I listened to. Uh, called Today's Mercies for, t- for Today's Troubles by uh, Piper. And he, he showed, he really beautifully explained how God gives us what we need today. And usually we become anxious and frustrated and angry and sad or, and depressed when, when we're not okay with that. When we get to a point where I'm not okay with just knowing that I have what I need for today, I need to know what's going to be there next week and a month from now, or how much is going to be in the account you know, now, or what the health is going to be of this person at this point, or how am I going to be, where am I going to be professionally at this point you know, down the future. And what we see here is that God gives us exactly what we need. He gives us today's mercy for today's troubles. And if you'll turn to Matthew 6, we'll look at that for just a minute. My parents uh, had a coffee cup in their house uh, uh, while we were growing up, and I stole it when I got my own house. And um, it says, uh, worrying does not empty tomorrow of its troubles, it empties today of its power. And I would alter it a little bit by saying that worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its troubles, but it might empty today, uh, it might make you unaware of the power that you have in Christ today because you have exactly the amount of mercy that you need. In Matthew 6, verse 34, It says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In Lamentations uh, 3, I believe it is, uh, 21 through 23, you don't have to turn there, it says, um, it says, uh, it says, um, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. They're new every morning. The reason that God's mercies are new every morning, the reason that he communicates to us that do not be anxious about tomorrow, tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day, (coughs) is its own trouble, is that yesterday's mercies will not suffice for today's troubles. So God promises to us that his mercies are new every morning. So we can wake up every morning and thank God, thank you God, that as I wake up today and as I get going, your mercies are new today. And the mercies that you give me this morning, and before I take my first breath, before my feet hit the floor getting out of bed, the mercies that you give me today are sufficient for today's troubles. And I know that that causes me, I don't need to be anxious about tomorrow, and also I don't need to be anxious about today. Why? Because he's given us the mercies that we need to get through the day. So sufficient for the day um, uh, Today's mercies are sufficient for today's troubles. Uh, Yesterday's mercies won't do, and we don't need tomorrow's mercies today. 
We need tomorrow's mercies tomorrow. And so uh, God doesn't, one of the things we talked about um, a couple weeks ago, I guess, the days running together, God doesn't lay heavy burdens on light shoulders. So he's, he prepares you for what you need. And each day he gives you the mercy that you need. And we're not called to be um, anxious about anything. Uh, in verse 15, God does something. In, they're, oh, back to Genesis 22. Yeah. Yeah. It'll go bad. Yeah. It'll go bad if you try to store it up. And don't whine about it because it's exactly what you need at the exact time you need it. Uh, in verse 15, Genesis twenty-two, fifteen, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, and here we see God speaking to the angel. He says, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. In verse 15, the next thing we see, we've seen that, that God uh, tests his children, God communicates his requirement, God keeps his promises, and in verse 15, God swears by himself. This is a big deal. When God says, I swear by myself that this is what's going to happen, this is my promise, this is my purpose, this is what I'm going to accomplish, this is a big deal for us today, actually. We see that the promise that he made here when he swore by himself is a really big deal for us today, um, and uh, we can see that in, if you'll turn to Hebrews 6, what God swears, as you turn to Hebrews 6, consider what he swears. He swears, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply your offspring, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and then the nations of... and in them, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So we see blessing, multiplication, possession, and then blessing again. And in Hebrews 6, uh, verses 13 through 20, Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20, uh, I'm going to read this, and it tells us, as I read, consider what it shows us about what God did when he swore by himself. What was he doing? Why is that significant for us today? For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So God's saying, I'm not going to swear by anything less than me, and I'm God, so I'm swearing by myself. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear in, uh, by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So we're seeing finality here. We're seeing confirmation. We're seeing God say, I saw that you would not withhold your only son, and as, as your God, I'm wanting you to know this is a final thing. So final, in fact, I'm going to swear by myself that there's finality here, and there's certainty, and there's confirmation. And then in verse 17, it says, so when God desired, this is so important, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, when God swears by himself, we're pretty sure he's telling the truth, it's impossible for God to lie, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, 
where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What God did when he swore by himself, he's showing us. This is why this is important for us today. We're heirs of the promise. We're heirs of the promise. We're fellow heirs with each other in the promise that was fully realized and, and fulfilled in Christ. So all the promises that God has made, all the plans that he's made, he shows that he fulfills those in, in Christ, and that makes us heirs of the promise. So it says, uh, the significance here then, is that uh, he shows us the heirs of the promise convincingly. I love that that word's in there. God doesn't say, I'm God, I should only have to say it once. Get it through your head. That's, I'm not, I'm not going to say it again. I'm God. He doesn't do that. He desires to show us convincingly. He wants us to be convinced that he is a good God who keeps his promises, who does not waver, who does not jump in and out, in and out hot, cold, hot, cold, kind of, I'm not going to keep it today, maybe tomorrow. That's not our God. Our God, our God is the source. If we have any steadfastness and staying power in our lives, our source is God, so that you can see what that says about our God. He swore by himself to show us, the heirs of the promise, convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. When he swore there to Abraham and said all those things about blessing and multiplication and how the nations would be blessed, it, was, it has a huge impact for us because he's showing us today through that convincingly that his purposes, the things he says he will accomplish, are, uh, they have an unchangeable character about them. Meaning the character of his purpose is that it's not changing. Turn to, uh, well, we'll get to that in a minute. The character of God's purposes are certain and unchangeable. Now, this is why this, uh, this is important. What would have happened if Isaac died? If God didn't intercede and God didn't provide the other lamb, if, if that didn't happen, what would have happened if Abraham would have stuck the knife in Isaac's neck and it would have been over? What would that mean for us? Game over. We wouldn't have got to this point. We wouldn't be sitting here talking about this because the promise was in Isaac. So here what we see is that God's promise would have been dead in the water if Isaac would have died. If God would not have sworn by himself in a convincing way, God desiring to convince his children the unchangeable character of his purpose, if he had not done that, God's promise would have been dead in the water and he would have had to change his promise to accommodate his new purpose. See, if, if he would have killed Isaac and that would have been the end of that, it would have been like, well, maybe through someone else your offspring shall be named. It would have changed the purpose. And if God would have changed the purpose, he would have had to change the promise that went with the purpose. And what would this result in? That would affect us in such a way that we would see his promises as less certain. If God would have done that, we would have seen his promises as less certain, changeable, rendering them less powerful, and the God of the promise less worthy of faith. Turn to Isaiah 46. I love Isaiah 46. Just as with Abraham, God swore by himself, I swear by myself, I will do this. I will multiply. I see that you have not withheld your son. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I'll multiply them as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. Here we see such certainty, and we see it again in Isaiah 46, verse 9. God says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God wants us to know that the certainty of the promises, 
the certainty of the purpose that he's going to redeem a people, that he is a real God, that Jesus really has made a way for us, that there is an eternal existence in heaven where we get to see God as he is, that those things are very true, that we can make it through any trial that he gives us because we have the Spirit and he enables us to do that. All those promises, all those purposes that we see God has set, here he links them to his name. Just like he did in Genesis when he said, I swear by myself, by my name, that this is what's true. In Isaiah 46, we see uh, the certainty of God's purposes are directly linked to his godness. That's the certainty of his purposes. So the big point is, you can trust God. You don't have to waver. You don't have to sit and be anxious. You don't have to be filled with um, frustration and not not knowing what's going to happen a week from now or two weeks from now. Today's mercies are sufficient for today's troubles, and God keeps his promises. That's what we have to come out of this with. So the example we have in Abraham's greatest trial is that even in the most dire circumstances, when all the details seem to convincingly indicate that God will break a promise, God more convincingly shows us that he doesn't break his promises and that he's a God who keeps his promises and that his purposes will all be accomplished because he's God. The purposes he has, the promises he's given are unchangeable. So as we're sitting here still talking about God's role, we have to ask, why does he want to show us this convincingly? Um, when you, whenever you try to convince someone of something and like within a few minutes they're just not getting it and you're giving them all you can give to convince them of what you're trying to tell them, what normally happens after about a minute of them not getting it? Or maybe y'all are great convincers and you've never had that problem. What normally happens? Frustration, lose your temper, raise your voice, start throwing things, whatever. If you're trying to convince someone of something, like you, you can picture the classic, uh, I saw a video one time of a guy trying to convince a police officer that he hadn't done something wrong. And by the end of the video, all, all the guy's trying to do is convince a police officer, I did not do that, sir. That's not the case. By the end of the video, the guy's voice had changed to the voice of a 10-year-old girl, and he's going, I did not! And he's screaming, and the car's shaking, and he's throwing the paper out, and he's just totally wigging out because he was trying to convince the guy something he thought was true. And here we see that we lose our, we, we should, um, in, in our uh, journey of faith as we're trying to, uh, as we know that we're holy, set apart, different, we should see God's patience here and we should try to do everything we can to ask God for the same kind of patience as we convince people of these truths. Um, we try to convince people of things that are important and while we often give up because, or just scream or throw something because people don't get it. God does not do that. God does not do that. So why does he show us this convincingly? Why is he convincingly showing us that he keeps his promises? So that, and it's there in the Hebrews verse, um, in Hebrews it says, at the end of uh, Hebrews 6, it says, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's one of the three things he says. So that we, he shows us this convincingly, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What are we fleeing from? What have we fled as people of God? Are we fleeing? Let me reverse it. What are some things we shouldn't be running towards? What? <laughs> I thought someone said men. I totally did. All right. Sorry. Uh, sin. Yes, we should not be running towards sin. What are other things? Worldly things that we see every day. List details. 
Sin is broad. We should not be running to sin, but things that all every day, what are some things that try to get, get you to start in the direction towards those things? Pride of life, lust of the flesh, la, 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 la. That's exactly right. La, 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 la. And we go on and on and on. Yeah, these are all things that we're fleeing from. And we flee from them not just to try by works to do something to earn God's favor, but because there's been a hope set before us. And it says we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. God has been so convincing. He's sworn by himself that he can be trusted, that he is a God who's never broken a promise. And one of the so that's of him doing that is that we have this truth, this promise that he gave to Abraham as a steadfast anchor of the soul. What does an anchor do to keep a boat from, what does an anchor do to a boat? Keeps it from what? Drifting. So what does an anchor do for your soul? Keeps it from drifting. It's a steadfast anchor of the soul. This promise that he gave is a steadfast anchor for our souls to not drift into foolishness and arrogance and anything that's not what God has designed. And then it says a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Hebrews 7 verses 26 to 28 says our hope goes to the inner place with God because Jesus goes there. Jesus is our hope. So our hope goes to this place where God is, heaven, because Jesus has gone there. It says he's gone to prepare a way. Uh, He's gone to prepare a place for us. And here we see that our hope is in that place because our hope is Jesus, and Jesus is in that place. See the connection. Our hope is where Jesus is. If Jesus was at the park, our hope is at the park. You see what I'm saying here? So because Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, that's where our hope is, and that has everything to do with the certainty of God's promise, that he does not break his promises, that he's a God who can be trusted, and that he's a God who gives us the exact amount of mercy that we need today for the troubles we'll we'll hit. The most important thing we, we skipped over back in Genesis 22, you can keep a finger in Hebrews if you like, Go back there in one second, but in in Genesis 22, verse 8, we see it says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. That's Abraham sharing with Isaac one of God's promises, a a promise that he, he has from God, a promise that he says, look, God will provide. God provides for us. God will provide exactly what he requires. God requires a burnt offering. Uh, and here we see this said, and then at the end of the chapter, not the end of the chapter, but in verse, uh, verse 11, we see the angel interject, Abraham, Abraham, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. The big thing here, the most important thing here is that God provides the lamb he requires. God provides the lamb that he requires. I want you all to consider the change in perspective. I mean, just moments before, what was Abraham's perspective? What was he looking at? What what was he looking down at? His son. And what was he holding in his hand? A knife. What was he going to do with the knife? He was going to kill his son with that knife. That was his perspective. What was Isaac's perspective? Looking up at his dad, who's got a knife. And Isaac's tied up, laying on top of an altar. He's a bright kid. He can put two and two together. He knows this is not going well from what he can see. The perspectives change so drastically when God provides the lamb that he requires. The perspectives change. What are they doing now? Well, Isaac is, Abraham has untied Isaac, probably helped him down off the altar. And here, the change of perspective. Now both Abraham and Isaac 
are standing together looking at God's provision. Abraham and Isaac are now standing together because God provides the land that he requires. Now Abraham and Isaac are standing there together, rope sitting on the ground, Isaac probably shaking it off, breathing heavy, saying God has provided. And they're both sitting there looking at the provision that God has given. And Abraham was no doubt violently zealous to untangle that ram. Ben mentioned it a couple weeks ago after, you just imagine him saying, come on, I'm going to get this. It's not a pretty thing when something's tangled up by its horns. It's a violent thing, and it takes some strength and some force to get it in, into place. And so you can imagine Abraham, no doubt, violently zealous to untangle the ram, wrestle it to the altar, and bind it. You know what he probably bound that ram with? The same rope he probably tied his son up with. He had untied his son, and his son's standing there with him, the rope sitting on the ground. He probably used that same rope to tie that lamb up. The same rope he used to bind his son. And he placed that ram in the very place that moments before he had placed his son. Y'all see this provision? If God had not interceded, this story would have turned out different. But here, he puts the ram in the very place that moments before he had placed his son. And then standing over the ram with the same knife with which he stood over his son just a few minutes before, He plunges the knife into the neck of the ram, killing it. I cannot help but think that as the knife punctured the flesh of the ram, that Abraham must have thought, thank you, God, that this is not my son's neck that this knife's going into. Can you imagine the thankfulness that he had? Thinking there's, I'm going through with this. And we know he had faith. We know that the faith was there. That's one of the points of this whole story is that God had moved him forward through trials, through tests, that now over 100 and something years old, we know that faith was there, that he was going to follow through with it. If, if God was not fully convinced that he was following through with it, God would not have interceded when he did. So we know that that faith is there, but can you imagine just that? Thank you, God, as I kill this ram, almost just a, a relief of, of killing that lamb, knowing that this is not my son's neck. I also cannot help but think that as Isaac watched his father, he must have thought, God, had you not provided a sacrifice, that would be my neck. That would be my death. So you can imagine the thankfulness with which Abraham and Isaac worshiped God here at his provision. In Hebrews 10, don't go ahead and turn there. Hebrews says a lot about what happened here in Genesis. In Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 12, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ, our Lamb, that God provided, not by our doing, But because of His goodness and His mercy and His grace and His redemptive way. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. And that's where my hope is. Remember, my hope is linked to Jesus. Christ, who made the sacrifice once that God provided for us, sits by God. And that's where my hope is now. And the other sacrifices can never take away sin. So here what we see is that that which God did for Isaac is the same thing that he's done for us. Hopefully we can rejoice with Isaac in this moment as Isaac's saying, if God hadn't provided that ram in the thicket behind us, that'd be my neck. I'd be dead. That which God did for Isaac is the same thing God has done for us. If not for Christ, it would be our neck. 
If not for Christ, it would be our death. And in the same way uh, that God required of Abraham his son, that meant that no other sacrifice would do unless God provided it. Like if Abraham would have changed the rules on the way and said, all right, look, we got to find a ram. we got to find a ram. Okay, that'll do. That's fine. It's a little, I don't care. That'll do. If Abraham would have changed the rules, it wouldn't have panned out okay. That's not okay. God required a specific sacrifice. And so Isaac's life would not be uh, saved here unless, the other, uh, um, unless another sacrifice was provided by God. For us, God's requirement is perfection. The requirement that God has for us is perfection. If we try any other means to make that happen, it ain't going to work out right. No one in this room can say, ah, I've got a plan and it's working out right. No, it's not. You're dying. It must, our sacrifice is Christ. God's requirement is perfection and we're dead where we stand. We're dead where we stand if Christ is not our sacrifice. And God, in Christ, provided for us the very sacrifice that he required. We've got to see that here. God keeps his promises. God's a God of redemption. God doesn't turn his back on us just because we're sinful. He moves us out of that sinfulness. He moves us out of that wickedness. He meets everybody in their sin. First John says that if anyone says he doesn't have sin, he deceives himself. But if he confesses it, God is just to forgive him those sins and to cleanse him of all unrighteousness. And so here, uh, this, this, at, at the end here, when they're standing there, Abraham and Isaac, They've killed the lamb, they've done the whole burnt offering thing, cut it up, burn it up, and they're standing there and they're worshiping God together. And it's cool because this is a really pivotal moment. Abraham and Isaac do as verse 5 said, where verse 5 in Genesis 22, he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That's what they did. They slaughter the lamb, and as they do so and offer it and worship as a burnt offering to God, it's a pivotal moment because up until this point, God was the God of Abraham. But after this point, after Isaac sees his father's faithfulness, and he sees more than that, the faithfulness of the God of his father, God's no longer the God of Abraham only. Now at this point, God is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. That's a big, pivotal point. Uh, eventually, we're going to see God as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob. And so, like when we sing, like, give us clean hands, uh, give us clean, O God of Jacob, give us clean hands, O God of Jacob, at the very end, O God of Jacob, when we're saying, O oh God of Jacob, we're saying, O oh God who provides. O oh God who was there for Isaac when he was laying on the altar. O oh God who was there for Abraham when he was at a point of such uncertainty, or we would definitely call it uncertainty as we observe, but as he was at a point where he's holding a knife over his son's neck, the God who provides in the most dire circumstances. So when we say, O oh God of Jacob, or when we see throughout the scriptures where it says, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, we are calling to memory this point where God provided for them and they worshiped together as they looked at God's provision and to, as God took them through the hardest trial that Abraham has ever seen. Another interesting note, and this is what we'll close with, and this is a secondary application. The important things for us to see in this are God provides. He does not break his promises. And he goes to a manner of swearing by himself <clears throat> so as to convincingly show us the certainty that there is in following him and trusting him in Christ. An interesting note here. I was looking at how God provided the ram. You know, it's pretty easy. God could have done that, and the ram would have been on the altar, tied up, and on fire, and already. You know what I mean? Like, God could have provided it in any way, but I, I thought it was interesting here that God's provision of the ram was behind them, caught in a thicket by his horns. There's no doubt that it took Abraham, who's over 100 years old, a lot of energy and work 
to wrestle that lamb into place so that his son would see God's provision. There's no doubt that by the time Abraham went and he got in the thicket and he took his knife and cut, cut away whatever had the, the horns and then grabbed the horns and took the, the ram and put it in place, there's no doubt that he would have been out of breath, that he would have given a lot of energy and it would have taken a lot of work so that his son could see God's provision. When Abraham and Isaac, uh, I'm thinking about that, that occurrence and, and Abraham working so hard to make that happen and then Isaac looking at the provision it's thinking, I'm not laying there. That lamb's laying there. I'm thinking about their trip back home, and when they walk back in to the house, and Sarah says, hey, how was y'all's trip? I was just thinking, well, I wonder what they said. And I'm betting that, I, that Isaac did not say, oh, mom, you should have seen it. Dad wrestled with ram. It was awesome. I bet that was in the, in the far back of his mind. I bet Isaac would have said, God provided, and God will provide. I bet that's what Isaac would have said when Sarah said, how was y'all's trip? God provided, and God will provide. And I bet he said it soberly. God enabled Abraham here, as we picture him wrestling that ram out of the, thor- out of the thicket. Um, God provided in Abraham. He enabled him to set an example for us as we lead our families. He, ena- he, enabled, an Abraham- he enabled Abraham to do something that sets an example for us as we lead our families. What I mean is this. Right now in our family, God would be the God of Scott and the God of Lindsay in our family. And my hope, I desperately hope one day that he's also the God of Ella and the God of Olivia and the God of however many other children God blesses us with. Um, that's, I desperately hope that, that, that he will not just be my God, but that one day I'll be able to look at my children praying, thanking God, knowing that he's their God. And that's wonderful and that's beautiful. So as we're on our journey of faith, the things that we've learned from this is, one, we must tell our children about God's promises so that when the trial or test comes, they have the opportunity to cling to those promises and trust God. Just like we saw, if Abraham hadn't said, son, God will provide. Isaac wouldn't have been sitting there saying, God provided. Just like you said, dad, dad, just like you said he would do, God provided. We must give our children the opportunity to trust those promises. We've got to tell them those promises so in the middle of the test and the trial when those come up, they have the opportunity to trust God and to cling to those promises. God has provided Christ, our sacrificial lamb, to die in our place and enable us to faithfully endure every trial. When our families are in the midst of tests and trials, and this is where I want you all to picture Abraham wrestling that ram out of the bushes. When our families are in the midst of tests and trials, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of sin will absolutely try to choke out the truth about God. When you're in the middle of your worst test, the darkest storm, whatever it is, cares of the world, deceitfulness of sin, even bad advice from good friends can sometimes try to choke out the truth about God and His provision. But just like Abraham, we must wrestle and fight and strive to make sure that the truth is not tangled up in the bushes behind us, but out front and on display So that just like Abraham and Isaac sat saying, God provided. Look at that lamb. God did that. God provided that just like he said. We we have to do the same thing. Put the truth about Christ out front and on display in the hard trials so that as a family we might worship through the trial and praise God for his provision for us in Christ. This whole story, man, there's... I want to write like some little book about like Parenting 101 from Father Abraham or something. There's so many things we learn in here 
about how our families function, how God functions. And the thing we got to take from this is that God gives us promises and God shows us his purposes in this word. We got to be serious about it. We got to be a people who are digging into this in community by the work of the spirit and, and sitting with our families in our living rooms and sitting with each other's families together in each other's living rooms and saying, God is good. And in this trial, whatever it is, I'm not making light of it. It may be as, as almost as horrible as it seems it could be with, with Abraham having a knife at his son's throat, not knowing it was a test at the time. We, we have these promises from God, and we've got to be serious about putting them on display and really even actually saying, God, um, show me the opportunity that there is to encourage someone in this. I know these promises. I know the purposes you have. And in, if you have someone in my life who's in a trial, in a dark place, who's battling with something, show me how I can tell them these promises so that when the certain trial, the certain test comes about, they'll be able to cling to them and trust you. So I, I, I've really liked our time in Genesis 22, and I'm excited about going on in Genesis 23. But as we close, I was going to see, are there any questions or thoughts or additions or...